Jason Weld. And I'm Alexander Wales. And this is Episode 7, Magic Systems Part 2. So last time we talked about what magic systems are, how sci-fi stories can have things akin to magic systems, and the difference between hard and soft magic systems, static and emergent magic systems, the place of technobabble in magic systems, all the things that you need to know to build your own. So let's talk more about what it actually looks like to build a rational, engaging magic system. Okay. So uh, last time we talked about the first of Sanderson's laws, which is a much more storytelling law than it is an actual magic system law, which is that your ability to resolve a conflict with magic system is dependent on how well your audience understands that. And that's pretty straightforward. Covered that last time. His second law is that limitations are more powerful in a storytelling sense than powers, right? I think a good example of that... I would have to go look up the thread for it, but um, someone was talking about writing a story in a world where for a period of like 10 minutes, any wish that anyone wished came true. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting idea, but it's, it's a very big one. You have to think about all the wishes that anyone would make on the planet Earth for a period of about 10 minutes. And then once all those things have come true, then your story starts and you have to think through the implications of all those things. And not only is that difficult, but it becomes less powerful and less interesting as you go through it, right? Because when you have limitations, it forces you to go in more creative ways, and it opens up more space to you. I think a lot of times, the, the kind of thing that Sanderson is talking about is that if you want to make a, a magic system more cool, a lot of people will just add things onto it. Mm-hmm. They'll just They'll just staple new things onto it. And what he's sort of saying there is that Instead, you can take things away. Mm-hmm. So, like, Shadows of the Limelight has its sort of fame-based system. And that requiring fame is a limitation added on to the magic system. It's not, like, you can you can take that limitation out and you get a much more boring bog-standard magic system. Right. Where, where people just have, it's, without that, it's basically an expanded version of avatars bending Mm -hmm. and you add that limitation in and you add in conflict immediately because fame is to some extent a limited resource right i to some extent disagree with sanderson because i think yes limitations add in the potential for conflict they make things more interesting and things like that but i think in part it's also that if you add in a limitation you get a lot of emergent problems out of it and so i think that adding in limitations is a subset of just making the system more emergent helps you in, in even if those uh, aren't limitations that you're adding on. So let's give an example of a limit that we think works well for a magic system to make it more balanced. How would you put it? Um, just more interesting. More interesting, yeah. I think, I think, well, okay, lending itself better to rationality. That's what I'll say. Yeah. Um, lending itself better to analysis. So let's say, let's say that you can generate heat, right? That's your power. It's like a quasi-fire power. You can add in a limitation to that, which is uh, you can only generate heat when you are standing stock still. And for if your story is going to be about, like, if it's going to be a combat-oriented story, that's a fairly interesting limitation because it completely changes your fighting style, right? Because mm-hmm. you would want to hold people in place and generate heat and cook them alive. Right. And then your whole, it opens up a world of possibilities that just generating heat, your strategy is much more simple. But having to stand still adds in complications to it. Right. 
And when you're talking about these kinds of limitations that you put on, on magic, there are some that when you're writing for a rational system ahead of time, you're going to try to put limitations on that make it hard to break the world. Right. Breaking the world is pretty easy if you have a magic system, mm-hmm. especially if you're in like a standard fantasy setting where you're Middle Ages or whatever. There are certain things that personally I always am on the lookout for whenever I look at a magic system and think, would this pass muster in a world where realistically intelligent people have access to this power and have not yet completely changed the way the world works? And some of the things that immediately jump out to me is any magic system that has an absolute operation, anything that changes time, like anything that works on on an instantaneous basis, changes the way we understand time. So in our world, nothing goes faster than light. So everything is limited by the speed of light. So truly instant things don't exist in our world, as far as we understand it, which means that a truly instant anything in a magical system, it's missing a limitation that is probably going to be very easy to exploit or very hard to rationalize. Yeah. Unbreakable works the same way. Anything that is immune to damage, corrosion, cannot be broken in half, cannot be chipped in any way. Something that's truly unbreakable is you can do so much with just a sphere the size of a grapefruit that's unbreakable, like truly unbreakable. It's just like the regular operation of atoms against atoms has to still work to some level. Otherwise, you've got a very easy to exploit and break society magical system. Same with something that's infinitely sharp, something that can cut literally anything without wear. The Two-Year Emperor had a great scene where the main character used invisible walls, I believe they're called, in, in uh, the D&D world, to just instantly and quickly cut metal. Because the edges of the plane of invisible wall were sharp enough to cut anything, so you just set up an invisible wall and then just start dropping things on it, and you've got a revolutionary method of manufacturing. Right. One of the steps of manufacturing, anyway. So yeah, anything that's instant, anything that's unbreakable, anything that's purely destructive in any, in every sense, anything that takes place anywhere, subverting the idea of distance, those are all, all any absolute in a magic system is going to be really easy to, to break with any kind of intelligent application and should probably be avoided. You want to put limits on those kinds of things, come up with limits, whether they're, you know, the instantaneous magic really operates at the speed of light, it usually won't matter, but you know, that's fine. It's as long as you've got that limitation there. Yeah, limitations, they work really well for adding in conflict, just because there are trade-offs, and they work really well for keeping your magic system from breaking the world. So that's uh, Sanderson's second law. I generally I generally hew to that, that I think, it's one of the things that I think uh, Worm did really well, is that, like, Clock Blocker, um, he can, like, freeze things in time, right? Mm-hmm. But it has two limitations to it. First of all, it's only for a a short period of time. And second of all, it's for a variable period of time. So he doesn't know how long it's going to be. And those limitations make his power a lot more interesting to the reader. And they're they're more interesting problems to solve with with that. They're, They're obstacles to surmount. It's a justifiable limitation on his ability to munchkin that power into godhood. Because if he could control the time limit, or even if he knew for sure what the time limit was he would be able to munchkin that power so hard. But because he can't control those elements, he as a character and we as a reader have an added element of tension and problem-solving to deal with. Yeah, and I think one of my favorite scenes in Worm comes out of him using an application of that power. Yeah. So 
Sanderson's third law is that you should expand onto a magic system before adding anything to it. What he sort of means by this is that, let's say you have Avatar The Last Airbender. Mm. A lot of the neat things from that come out of sort of applications of bending to non-obvious things. You mean like blood bending and metal yeah. bending? like blood bending and vine bending and... Uh, in Legend of Korra, they do they use airbending to create a void, mm-hmm. create a partial vacuum to kill a person. And that is an expansion of the magic system, because that was sort of implied a little bit to be possible, but you're expanding the magic system rather than adding like a fifth type of bending, mm-hmm. right? And it's more neat for the reader to sort of come across stuff like that. It shows more thought, generally speaking. Because you're getting to those sort of questions that that you instantly have about magic system, which is, all right, I can control water. Well, what what is water? Is blood the same as water? Obviously, it's not. But is it close enough to count for the purposes of whatever is recognizing this element? Mm-hmm. Can I bend any liquid? Right. Is it a matter of H2O? Is it a matter of the state of matter? What is it? And this goes back to the conversation about awe in magic systems and inducing awe in magic systems. And one of the things about expanding on magic before adding new types of magic or new elements to magic is that once you add a new element to the magic and reveal it to the reader, again, you're front-loading the awe, right? Like, you're like, oh, this is such a cool thing in the story. And, you know, it'll carry through for a bit. And then eventually it's just part of the story, so it doesn't it doesn't surprise them anymore. It doesn't stand out as an organically cool or awe-inspiring event. But if you expand on something in the magic system and find clever ways to use it, then you can continue to induce awe and have those, oh my god, that was amazing moments. Yeah, and in terms of like rationalizing stuff, um, or like creating your own magic system and trying to make it a rational one, you get a lot more mileage out of those expansions than you do out of just adding on more stuff that the magic can do. Right. This is also another thing that, again, the more you dig into it, the more applications you'll find. It's just a never-ending, turtles-all-the-way-down kind of situation until you put the limit there. So yeah. uh, telekinesis um, is a very popular power, whether with, through psychic or magical means, just being able to move something remotely. And the question always has to come up in my mind, how fine a thing can they move and what effort goes into it? Because outside of things like the Force, where apparently size matters not, according to Yoda, you Which usually totally have... Does. Yeah, absolutely it matters. Yeah. Like, without the limit on size upwards, you have a lot of problems. And that's usually obvious to people, right? They'll have people straining to push something that's too heavy or too big. But the question also has to come to small. If it's not a matter of smallness, then you're going to run into much bigger problems about what this power can do. Because... If I had the power to move something with my mind, my first test would be how small a thing can it be and how finely can I manipulate it? Because if it's not a matter of what I can see, then I can move atoms, potentially, or cells. And that opens up a whole world of creating things through telekinesis and changing things through telekinesis. Right. It makes telekinesis a kind of alchemy. And even if you don't want to go to that level, even if you you put the stop at things the size of your pinky nail, you know, something like small enough that your mind can conceptually grasp it as a as an individual thing, which most people can't do for cells or atoms. Do I do I have to see it directly? Because if not, 
and I just know that it's there, can I, you usually have to add another power in to send something. Because you usually can move things based off of just conceptually seeing the thing as a, as a as a whole, but like we learned from an examination of Superman's powers, you can't lift part of something if it's heavy enough without breaking it. Right. You're going to break some part of it and applying force to lift it, unless you're lifting the entire thing from the bottom up, which you can't really see. So at some point, you being able to see that big box is you being able to lift from all parts underneath it upward at the same time. So again, you got to think about what's the limit on what you can see, because if you don't have a limit on what you can see, and the box lifting thing is not a problem for you, then you should be able to kill someone by simply moving a bone in their neck two inches to the left. You could kill a whole group of people just by thinking about it. And that's the kind of telekinetic power that you never see, usually, in television or books or anything like that, because people just don't think about how small can the person move things. How do they have to conceptually think of it in their mind to be able to move it? And that's one of the, again, an area where you have to be cognizant of the limit and cognizant of how deep you can tunnel into any given power to stop it from being overpowered or make it overpowered if that's what you want it to be. Because a villain that can kill people with his mind by simply moving a bone in their body into in the right place is obviously terrifying. Yeah, and it's usually good for villains to have overpowered stuff. Mm -hmm. Heroes, it gets boring because you can't generate conflict out of it. You can generate conflict out of it, but the more that your hero can just solve conflicts instantly, the bigger that your villain needs to be. Mm-hmm to be a reasonable threat, which is why you usually in fiction see weak heroes and strong villains, or right. at least heroes that are less strong than the villains. There are very few exceptions to that, I think. The hero's always trying to overcome against incredible odds. Right. That's where the root of a lot of drama comes from. As a storytelling mechanic, it's inherently part of the storytelling process that we want to see conflict between someone who we root for against someone that is stronger and more powerful than them. Yeah, and that's where a lot of uh, irrationality in fiction comes from, because mm -hmm. they have this, like, monstrously powerful, terrifying force that the hero's facing down and should not... The hero should not win, mm -hmm. and then the hero wins just through BS. Yeah, the power of friendship, the power of love, God wills it, whatever. Yeah. Those kinds of cheats are the exact reason why you want your magic system to be comprehensive and understandable and logically exploitable. Yeah. So you don't have to fall back on things like that. Yeah. So last time we talked about uh, static versus emergent, I think a lot of the more interesting magic systems are emergent rather than static. Yep. Like um, Avatar The Last Airbender, very emergent system because there are so many things that you can do with bending that are within the bounds of bending. The problem with emergent systems is the more rules that you add in, and to some extent, the looser those rules are, the more that you get a combinatorial explosion of what's possible. And you can just, you can drown yourself if you add too many things to, to a magic system. If you're making your, like, list of rules of what your magic system can do, if there are too many things on it, you won't be able to think through all of them. Mm -hmm. Or you'll just be sitting there at your computer typing up. These are all the outcomes of it, and then you'll start writing, and then someone will come along at the like beta reading or possibly even when it's published and they'll be like, well, why, why, why not this thing that is logically a thing that you could do from the rules. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the reasons that adding limits is good because it, it sort of narrows down what's possible to something that an individual author can do or can think through. Faking a society that has had 
like a hundred years or two hundred years with this magic system, or which has been around for all of like human history, mm-hmm. that's that's tough because you're not as an author as smart <laughs> as two hundred years of yeah millions of people thinking about something and trying to exploit it with incentives to get fame and money and all that. Yeah. So for Glenn Warden, I was uh, doing some research on how gunpowder is made. Mm-hmm. And you need sulfur in order to make gunpowder. Gunpowder is made of uh, nitre, brimstone, which is sulfur, and charcoal. Mm-hmm. And you can make different kinds of gunpowder, which they did, but you need sulfuric acid for that, for which you need sulfur. And so I was looking at sulfur mining, and I came across this uh, fairly interesting article about the history of um, of sulfur mining. And... There was a problem down in Louisiana uh, where they they were trying to drill for oil and they discovered uh, a sulfur deposit instead. And so they tried to build these sulfur mines down. And this this went on for like 20, 30 years or so as they tried to build sulfur mines that went down. And like no one could do it. Um, And then this guy came along and he said, well, okay, the melting point of sulfur is not all that much higher than the boiling point of water. So we can just pipe superheated water down into the ground. It'll melt the sulfur, and then the sulfur will be sucked up the tube. And that's that's like a very logical consequence of what happens in the real world. And it took like 30 years of people dying for them to figure it out. Right. So you have You have cover as far as like, you know, why did no one figure this out before? Because right. that's something that I see a lot on the rational subreddit is like, they should have figured out this obvious thing. Well, I mean, overestimating from our privilege point in history, how smart people need to be to figure things like this out in the realistic constraints that they have, because we're all armchair historians thinking back over the amazing things that people have figured out and how obvious they may or may not be according to what we understand. But from the point in time when people didn't even know these things were possible, they were completely novel solutions that took a lot of time and effort and trial and error. Yeah, and even though these things are just implied by the rules that so many people know, right? Because mm-hmm. it took you know 30 years of people trying to dig these sulfur mines and failing and dying and not being able to get their precious sulfur. And then it took an additional like 15 years to actually get the process working and economical. Right. And so the, I, when I think about magic systems, I think about that quite a bit, about how difficult things actually are. Because it's sort of easy to look at a magic system and be like, oh, hey, Magneto can like move magnetic fields. And, you know, therefore, he should be able to like generate TV signals or something like that. Mm-hmm. If you want to have that as your Magneto, as our example of a magic system, it is believable that Magneto might not have ever thought about that. And not only might not have ever thought about that, but whatever mechanisms in his mind have to be kicked into gear. Like whatever unknowable part of his mental state has to exist for him to move metal and create those electromagnetic waves in the way that moves metal. We don't know just because he can create those electromagnetic waves in a certain way that he can do it in a in a way that does something else necessarily. Yeah. Like he, he might have to actually visually conceptualize how the metal moves. And that's all he does, and then his power takes over the rest and just does the electromagneticism necessary to do what he envisions. In which case, he might not be able to do something that's not moving metal with his power. Yeah, so so there, there are two sort of paths that you can take to the question of why did no one think of this before? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think it's, it's plausible that 
no one did think of it before because you look at human history and I think all the stuff that people have done looks kind of obvious to us. And right. then we think, why did everyone ever do it the other way? And sometimes, you know, if the thing is obvious enough, you just you don't understand how they could possibly have thought otherwise. Then then the other path is you can have it not be possible. You can add rules into your magic system to to add limits to it. Um, and I think one of the things in rational fiction is you want those moments of insight. But once you've had those moments of insight about your own magic system, you start thinking to yourself, well, is this a thing that just like anyone would have come up with? Like, can I have this be an insight for my character yeah. rather than something that has been in the world for the last like 300 years? Right. So there are certain things that if you're building a magic system from ground up and are kind of important to think about. The first thing is probably going to be resources, whatever the resource is called, mana, energy, you know, whether it takes your body's natural quote unquote energy from it so that if you're using your magic, it's the same as running really hard or exercising your muscles, whether it's some completely separate system that you can't normally feel, but because you're a magic user, you can feel like your soul energy or whatever. You want some limiting factor per individual. Right. I had a uh, story I was writing, and the, the limiting factor was um, carbon monoxide poisoning. You use magic and you get carbon monoxide poisoning. So there are various kinds of injections into your body of different stuff. And I, I love those limitations because it's inherent conflict within the story, which is good for generating an interesting story because, mm -hmm. you know, I can't use this too much. It's a good limit break. If you've got a mana pool and your mana pool runs out, you're done. You can't do magic. If you can go past a certain limit, but you put yourself at risk to do so, it creates moments of drama and believable organic moments of awesome if you do go past your limit. As long as you keep it realistic, like you don't want someone to be like, oh, you know, I can't push something that much, otherwise I'm going to die, and then have them push something that much and then just barely survive somehow and get brought back to full health, because that just ruins the drama. It ruins the suspension of disbelief. You want there to be real consequences if you're gonna, if you go that route, you want there to be real consequences to stretching your magic past its limits. So that's the first thing, right? Resources, deciding whether it's whether it's in the in the story or not is something that should be done, I think, based off of the story itself rather than anything else, because you're gonna find a lot of magic systems that don't have anything like that. Alchemy in Full Metal Alchemist, for example, as far as I'm aware, there's no energy requirement to do alchemy. You just have to have the materials make the circle and perform the alchemy. But the thing that powers alchemy is something that's revealed later in the series, and having the raw source of that power allows you to do things that you wouldn't normally be able to do in the alchemy. In, in alchemy. So if you do make a magic system that doesn't have a resource, you, you either want to make it rare, make it immoral, like in some obvious way to, to make a lot of it, or to have some negative side effect to, to, to making use of it directly. Yeah, if if you want that to be the the drama conflict, yeah. yeah, because you can you can have unlimited magics that have different kinds of um, different kinds of drama to them. Right. So it, this goes back to the the society breaking potential side effects of magic too, though, because if you've got something that if you if your magic is simply to move something and it takes no energy whatsoever to do it, and that's just part of what the magic does effortlessly once you in, invoke it. You could make fairly you basically you can create energy out of nothing. And now you've got a perpetual motion machine set up that, you know, may not be perfect because you still need people performing the magic on it, but 
it's definitely much easier to make energy in that world than it would be in ours. Yeah. So you, once you start breaking the rules of thermodynamics, like anything goes in terms of how that can exponentially explode the technology of the world and things like that. So those are the kinds of things you wanna you wanna put a limit on when you're when thinking of your magic system, generally speaking. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's the first one would be the resources. The second one I would say would be the invocation slash casting, whatever you want to call it. The way that the magic is is learned and applied. There's one general kind of way to do it where once you learn the magic, you've learned it. It kind of goes back to the static example. It's you just know the words, say the words, the spell is cast. And the other is something that you can train along along a gradient. So you get better at the magic the more the the, the more you work at it and the harder you work at it. And from a rational perspective, they both can can be done. The ones that are that tend to be very satisfying in a lot of fiction are the ones where the the person has to train at them. Yep. Because when they're static, it's it becomes a, a collecting game, right? If in Harry Potter, the the wizard with the most arcane knowledge is the strongest, there's very little that that people can do beyond simply find as much magic as possible and learn it. And that's it can be you know it can be exciting and interesting if you if you write it that way, but in and of itself is not lend itself to a lot of drama or effort on the character's parts or struggle on the character's parts. It really it really depends on context and environment to make that a challenge and a exciting adventure. Uh, whereas needing to work at it and and develop it yourself has built in challenges to it. Yeah, the thing you want to do is you want to make sure that that's an interesting progression. Right. Uh, there's a reason that like training montages exist <laughs> is because a lot of that repetitive stuff is very boring to readers or, or watchers. Um, and you can structure a magic system such that there's like a road of trials type thing. That's a more interesting way of, of progressing past certain benchmarks rather than just, uh, having to mention every, like, couple chapters, oh, he trained to doing his magic better, right? And you can also, I think that accumulation progression, you can do that in a, a couple other ways, too. It sort of ties back into the resource limitations, um, but you, like, in in Glimwarden, uh, which I'm currently writing, you progress through training and through gaining skills and stuff like that. But you also progress by like eating these darkling hearts. So there are two sort of progression tracks that you can work along. And then there are different like resource management things within that. Mm -hmm. And like you said earlier, you want to make the limited amount, the limited, limited availability of the magic system is also an important factor. If it's something like avatar or, Mistborn, where everyone has one shard of this of this kaleidoscope of magic powers um, that exist, then it's not such a big deal if you know one eighth of the population has one kind of power and another one eighth of the population has another kind of power. But the, it's easier not to break the world or society with a magic system if it's rare and hard to get and hard to master, and only a small amount of people can really do it. Yeah, and. Two more, I'll add to that. Magic can be dangerous. Mm -hmm. In um, Charles Strauss's Laundry Files, people get uh, brain damage from doing magic, um, or they sometimes summon demons doing magic. 
And that puts a very, very serious limit on how much magic can break the world. Because, right. you know, you can power your car, but it might kill you like one out of every hundred times. And then no one's going to power their car with it. The other option is to make it um, unstable in some way or, or more random, more wild. Mm-hmm. If you can't rely on magic to whatever extent, uh, that that limits its capability of breaking the world as well. I think you can run into some problems there with... Um, it kind of makes it irrational, inherently. Yeah. It's un- if, it's un- if it's too unstable, you can't treat it like a, a science. You can't, you can't explain it or, or have it un- be an exploitable system because the inclination and risk of it simply following the rules of drama is too great. Yeah. It'll fail unexplainably when it's convenient for the writer to have it fail, and it'll work when it's convenient for the writer to want it to work. Yeah. And that kind of leads me into another point about creating a magic system for a rational story. Your objective as a writer, when you when you create the ability to cheat the system, and by the system I mean reality, which is what you're writing in, um, you know, all stories are based on reality and then either remove parts of it to to tell a certain kind of story or add things in like magic to tell a certain kind of story. And if you are making your your job easier as a writer through your magic, you want to check your, your path. You want to make sure that you're paying extra close attention to what you're doing in that sense because magic, you know, magic should be fun as an element of a story and it should be a great way to create conflict and explore ideas and solve problems and all that stuff. But if you're using, if you if you find yourself using magic or thinking of ways to use your magic system to get the desired result in your story that you want, you might be writing a less rational story than a more rational story. Yeah. And as rational writers and readers, that's something that I feel like is important to stress because it's too easy, as we've seen for even the best magic system creators like Brandon Sanderson, to cheat their own system when it's convenient to them as writers and. Again, these can be perfectly enjoyable stories, but certain readers, I suspect our audience is going to be many of them, and I know certainly for me, these moments do not make up for the moment of awesome. They they leave a bad taste in my mouth, especially if the system otherwise is, is very well made. Right. It kind of feels like a, a waste of effort to make such a well-made system and then drop the ball when they want to cheat it anyway. Yeah, because for me, that's, that's what I remember. I remember the times that it's like, well, you cheated. Yep. That's not that's that's not what I signed up for when I started reading this book and you were describing your rules to me and then you and then you cheated at those rules because it was you know I would rather read a story that from the beginning has its magic be wild than have it put systems in place and then break those systems when it's convenient to the writer because that way my expectations are appropriate. Yeah, and one of the things one of the cool things that I think that you can do with wild magic or like more random magic is you can have it appear random and then discover the right underlying mechanisms, the underlying mechanisms behind why these apparently random failures happen, Mm -hmm. which is, I think one of the neat things that you can mostly only do with magic systems. Another thing to, to keep in mind for magic systems is that um, if you are writing a fiction that has different species in it and different levels of sentience, well, not different levels of sentience, but different species with sentience in it, and sapiens. It can always be fun to examine how magic works as a result of genetics and as a result of culture. So in the Dresden Files, human human magic users are wizards, 
and they have all sorts of rules in place for how their magic works, and there's lots of different kinds of magic, but it follows the same general rules. A side effect of their magic is that it tends to make technology go wrong around them, and before technology existed, it's pointed out that it used to make, like, milk curdle and cows, you know, give birth to, to calves with two heads and things like that. And so, like, the rules of magic have changed as society has changed and has as the world has changed. And there's some theories as to why this is the case, but it's an interesting mechanism of, of both a potential drawback and limit for the magic and a kind of flavor a wider scope to what magic might be. Yeah. What's interesting also, though, is that other species in the Dresdenverse, even if they have magic very similar to wizards, do not have that effect. The Fae can use magic around technology no problem whatsoever, which implies that there's there's a, either a psychological or a genetic difference to, to the magic casting that itself can be exploited and explored and made an engaging plot or exploration or conflict between two characters. So keep, culturally, go ahead. Keep, keep in mind, I'm, I'm only on the third book, but uh, right. do the Fae ever, is this like a protagonist and antagonist or side character distinction? The Fae? Yeah. I mean, in that you have a human character who doesn't interact well with technology, mm-hmm. right? And he's our protagonist, but our like other characters who are either allies or like because we were talking about sanderson's first law which is Mm -hmm. about conflict resolution and is is this a matter of you throw more limits in the way of the protagonist because that increases conflicts and then you remove that from the antagonist because or from not necessarily antagonist but i see what you're saying yeah you remove those limits from characters who cannot uh or who are not resolving conflict Right, right. Kind of both. It's used interesting ways because the different books will generally start focusing on different antagonists, sometimes more than one, but um, different groups. Like there's some books will focus on the vampires, some books will focus on the fae, some books will focus on demons, things like that. And these different kinds of magic systems that each make use of, the different domains of magic that they make use of, it makes it so that the main character kind of has to operate under a different set of of limitations and, and challenges each time. And they're all pretty much understood, but they work in a certain way that's consistent from protagonist to antagonist. And Harry, being a somewhat intelligent main character, is quick to exploit these differences in the magic systems through his allies or or against his enemies. Yeah. So you want to talk about uh, using multiple systems of magic, like in, uh, there's a whole bunch of examples, Kingkiller Chronicles. Right. Or Mistborn does it. It's got two... I guess technically three magic systems to it. It's got uh, hemallergy, allomancy, and ferrochemy. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that you need to keep in mind if you're going to go that route is keeping each fairly simple on its own because you run into that explosion of possibilities if they interact with each other in any meaningful way. Right. Um, I think that's one of the best parts of Mistborn is how these interact with each other. Yeah, not just between the different kinds of magic, but within even within each kind of magic, where yeah. someone with each kind of pharomancy and someone with each kind of Alamancy. right can do an amazing amount of things that even individuals with parts of them can't. And then once you start combining across different ones, obviously it gets even more. Yeah. So for for Mistborn, it's sort of like, um, and it get, there's the sequel series, which is the alloy of, starting with alloy of law, but. Right. Um, Mistborn is very much like basically 32 different magic systems. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, that's kind of a weird way to think about it because it's not like how it's presented, but like, okay, you can make yourself, you know, you can make yourself stronger by burning pewter, right? Or you can make yourself stronger by storing m- yeah. muscle and then releasing it. Yeah. So um, it's very much, I think if you're going to mix magic systems like Sanderson does in Mistborn, you really need to think in terms of how are these going to interact with each other? And I think there's, you, you basically have to go through and look at all of your combinations and make sure that you're still not breaking the world. Right. And uh, Sanderson limits it because the number of people who can do like that, there are, first of all, there are the mistings who just have one of the powers that a mistborn does. And then there are Mistborn who have all of those powers. Then you need to think about how all those powers work together mm-hmm. and what they can do all together. And then if you like combine a full Alamancer and a full Ferrochemist, then there are so many things to think about interacting with each other. He probably just sat down and spent, you know, a full day just going through and making sure that he wasn't missing anything really obvious about that. And that's very difficult to do. But then there's this other way of using multiple magic systems, which is like Name of the Wind does. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have you have sympathy, and then you have names, and then they don't really interact. They serve two different roles in the story, and one is more about solving conflicts in various ways, um, and the other is more about these moments of awesomeness. Right, moments of awesomeness and a plot hook, plot development tool. Yeah, if you have multiple magic systems, I think one of the things, and and they don't overlap at all, Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the things that you want to do is you want to make sure that they serve different roles in the story. Right, figure out what purpose you want them each to serve in the story. Yeah, and I think that's very common for, especially for longer works, is to mix different magic systems with each other just because you get a lot more mileage out of it. There's a lot more to explore then. But you have to think about like how they interact, if they interact at all. And eventually, you, if you add too much in, you get to the point where people start wondering why, why the world looks like it does rather than having been totally exploited. And if you want to totally exploit the world, that's actually fine. You just need to make sure that the world you present ha- is a world that has been rationalized, mm-hmm. right? That that was part of what I was trying to do with Shadows of the Limelight. I'm not sure I succeeded at that, but the idea was that, you know, people have had hundreds of years to figure this stuff out, and they have figured it out, and that's mm-hmm. just standard practice. And it doesn't matter if that breaks the world of the Middle Ages, because we're not in the world of the Middle Ages. Right. We're in some fantasy mixture of Middle Age kind of medieval time period that so much fantasy seems to be set in, plus these strange leaps and bounds where the magic has helped shape society in a very different way. Yeah, and it's hard to do that because, again, you're a single author who's just writing for hours at a time as opposed to the thousands of or millions of people who have devoted their entire lives to solving these problems. But Mm -hmm. I think that's it's okay to break the world so long as you think through all the consequences. Right, and... This goes up for technology, too. Like we said, you know, the, the technology of sci-fi is its own magic system. Using advanced technology as a, as a form of magic is very much 
the replacement for a magic system in sci-fi. Yeah. If you come up with technobabble for why the, te- the teleporter doesn't work at convenient moments, well, you know, we all know what you're doing. and It's cheating in a, in a way that we still want to try to avoid in rational fiction. If the teleporter ever doesn't work, we need to know why it doesn't work and how to fix it, and it should never happen again. Yeah. Because, like, intelligent people operating a machine that that useful and powerful need to be on their game. And if it does fail, it should be the result of sabotage or something like that, not just because. This applies to fan fiction about science fiction, fan fiction about magic systems. When you're writing a fan fiction based off of the technology of something already established or the magic of something already established, you have the option to, if you think of something better, if you think of something, a better way to use the magic or a better way to use the technology, your options are either to have them do that, have your characters do that, and probably break the world, which is okay if that's the kind of story you want to you want to write. Or you have the option of coming up with limitations that were not explicitly mentioned in the story, but which explain the lack of exploitation by the characters in the story. Right. For me, Pokeballs in the anime slash video games, they've always been... It, it's never made sense to me the way the Pokeballs work combined with how people use them. The Pokeballs themselves are... Virtually unstoppable weapons. As long as you can capture the Pokemon in the ball, you've got a pure advantage over them in terms of setting up traps, getting other Pokemons like, ready to throw them again and again and again. Economic limitations don't usually come up in the video game or the anime. So I had to create reasons for why the Pokeballs can't work as well as they seem to, because otherwise the reason that writer i mean um characters in the anime wouldn't use pokeballs in a more intelligent way like just dropping them constantly on on pokemon in the wild from above you you come up with limitations to make the the world make sense for your rational fiction yeah and that makes it that brings up a whole new set of conflicts and things for you to solve rather than the somewhat easy way to just break the world as presented yeah, I don't tend to like break the world stories that much unless there's some other layer of conflict. Mm-hmm. Like they they can be fun. They 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 a lot of like power fantasy and wish fulfillment goes that route. But for me, they can get boring fairly quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and Jumper Jumper has uh, the book series, not the the movie has antagonists with their own whatever. But um, in Jumper, there's nothing really stopping him from using his power to do a lot of like crazy stuff and most of the conflict then is him and his in the first book anyway is him and his alcoholic father and his relationship with his mother who left when he was little and it's a lot of that character development stuff rather than oh look i can teleport and rob a bank and have all this money and i can like do all this neat stuff but that if if you're going to have a power that breaks the world, that can get really boring, so you might want to um, have your drama come from some other some other place. Right. I think my, my favorite Superman stories are always moral ones, or they're ones that are where Superman's trying to figure things out. And, and he's not solving conflicts by punching really hard, because he can punch really hard. He's trying to solve conflicts where his powers don't help him that much or he has to decide how to use his powers or things like that that's just something to keep in mind if you're if you're thinking about a break the world story is where is my conflict going to come from convenience you know like any other part of fiction the convenience of a plot element is going to be variable like it's okay for bad things to happen just because occasionally 
Um, but you don't want your magic system or your technology to be part of that because it's it's what's completely. I, I guess because like because you're the one that designed it in the first place, you have the the least ability to. Hmm, how do I put that? Why is it worse to cheat with your magic system than it is to just have coincidences happen in, in favor of your storytelling? Yeah. Well, I don't think it. I don't think it is necessarily worse. Worse, but that's still a. A, a sin as far as rational fiction goes. Right. Is just, just adding in bunches and bunches of coincidence, that's not a sign of good writing, certainly. Mm-hmm. It's not a sign of rational writing either. Even if coincidences do happen in life, you eventually just... You break suspension of disbelief and you make it so that no analysis can happen on the part of the reader. Yeah. So that's it for Magic Systems Part 2. We might revisit this topic at some point again in the future, and it'll probably go into either more detail or address specific issues. We might even do some fan feedback questions or analysis of specific magic systems. Yeah. Next episode is going to be the three, eight, or nine types of conflict, depending on who you're listening to. Yep. Hope you join us then. 